What's up, y'all? Hope everybody is well. Um, I am having a hell of a week. It has been interesting, to say the least. Um, but having some sound issues, so bear with me. Actually, it's a little more significant than that. My computer crashed earlier uh, this week, Sunday in actuality. Um, and so all my, everything shut down. I actually had to go back to factory in terms of uh, setting my system back up. So I am, uh, I'm trying to get things back on track, but it has been a strange week. Uh, I nevertheless hope all is well. Hope you all are well. Welcome back to the Onyx Report. Y'all know what it is. Um, getting back on our weekly schedule. But here on the Onyx Report is where we uh, black male justice advocates uplift black men and boys using critical analysis. Well, welcome to the Teradol. All right. Welcome to the Brotherhood, Mark. Uh, good to see you in here. Well, welcome to the Teradol. DH, these might be from over the last few days. Um, well, welcome to the Teradol. Yeah, cornbread. Some of these look familiar, though. Well, welcome to the Teradol. Ryan. Um, what's up, Rodney? Leeway, Lee's Ways. What's going on, Joe? Uh, average brother, Phil. Um, seems like we've got a few people in here. Malika, what's going on, man? Um, hope everybody is well. So, like I said, yeah, my whole my whole system crashed. It was an operating system uh, uh, corruption issue. Uh, Juice, appreciate that support. Gavin, what's going on? Mr. Heat, Ron, TD, what's happening? Mahir, Samuel, what's going on? Calvin. Um, yeah, appreciate that juice. Uh, appreciate the uh, cash app, Casey. Appreciate that. Uh, so yeah, it's been a strange week. So y'all let me know if, you know, if, if my mic sounds weird and if I have any technical issues, I'm letting you know now, uh, cause I had to do everything from reinstall. Like I had to reinstall like, uh, fonts, you know, that's how my system went straight back to factory. You know what I mean? So, uh, it's been a little bit of a crazy week, but we're going to get it together. We're going to get it together. Those of you who follow me on other platforms know some of the things that have been crossing through my head. So we're going to get some of that in here um, as well. So let me, but as I usually like to do, I'd like to start out with honoring my subscribers, my supporters. Now, hopefully, um, everything will work. <laughs> It's, it's kind of hard to say, you know, hopefully. G-Rock, appreciate that support. Coming out of Compton, I see. All right. Used to work out there. Uh, so it's been a little while. Right. So let me see if I if this is definitely working. Hopefully we can get this right. And it isn't. All right. That's good to know. See, these are the kind of things I thought I had checked up on that one yesterday, but man, this stuff is irritating. Um, let's see. Yep, it should be, but strangely enough, isn't. Hmm. Let's see if it does this way. Nope. Yeah, so this is what I mean. I mean, back to scratch, man. This was 
this was trying to say the least. So I'm literally fixing things as I go. And this one, um, I apologize to my subscribers. I'm going to have to fix a little bit later. What's up, Stylus? Good to see you. Um, so, yeah, man, it's been a long one. It's been some late nights uh, putting things back together, reinstalling software, hardware, everything. But, uh, and I, man, even up to like 20 minutes ago. So, um, but I didn't want to cancel uh, because it's been a strange last month. So I wanted to get it back on track. We got 66 in here. Uh, we're broadcasting on uh, YouTube, Facebook, um, and Twitch. So please make sure you like, share, and subscribe. This will also be loaded on iTunes uh, where the other shows are, my other weekly lives. You can find them there as well. Uh, so support the show. Let me see. At least if we can get the basics working, that would be good. Okay. All right. So we got to got to get it together and we're working on it even got the smell goods going in here just to get me in the zone so y'all know what it is as i said and uh i'm trying to keep it going now make sure as you all know to like share and subscribe uh you can join the channel as well uh, uh you can do so by going on youtube right next to the subscribe button, hitting the join button, looking at the various options uh, for each level of membership. You're welcome to do that. Uh, and you can support the show along those lines. You can also do, as you can see on the screen, a Patreon support uh, donation, Cash App, PayPal, and even Venmo. So there are a variety of other opportunities and ways that you can support. All right. Now, jumping right in. Today, a couple public service announcements, right? couple public service announcements. Um, first one was something that a colleague, well, this is an associate of mine, actually extended to me. Um, appreciate that social English. Uh, Gavin, what's going on? Okay, I'll think about that. Uh, Sex at Dawn. I haven't read that one. Okay. What's up, Christopher? So, you know, associate of mine sent me this. And there's a little video that uh, I'm going to see if I can play, uh, provided that uh, <laughs> everything is working. But uh, let me see if I can share the screen. Hopefully it will go. All right. So I'm going to play a video for a couple minutes about a particular incident that took place. That you can see on YouTube. So um, do me a favor. Let me know if you know what. Let me I don't think I clicked the sound make sure I do that I just want to make sure oh, there's no uh, share audio there we go and let's try it all right so you guys let me know if you guys can hear this okay well, that went weird there we go oh no it didn't now it is I appreciate that Rodney yeah, I apologize, y'all. This is what it is this week. I'm trying to get it together, but uh, my system is acting brand new. Um, yeah, all right. So let's see if that helps it along. Okay, okay, okay. And there we go. So let's give it a try. See if you guys can hear this. 
Rosario has something about one it's of those. It's Dr. Rosario. Thank you, sir. Mrs. Rosario has something Do about Dr. Rosario. At the Greensboro, North Carolina City Council, that was Zoning Commissioner Tony Collins. He refused to address this woman by her title, Tony, doctor. Please. You know, I, I'm sorry. Your name says on here, Carrie Rosario. Hey, Carrie. Mm -hmm. Um. It's Dr. Rosario. Dr. Carrie Rosario has a doctorate degree in health education. She works as a professor at the University of North Carolina in Greensboro. Please, sir, uh, yeah. call me as I would like to be called. That's how I'm identifying. It, it doesn't really matter. We're here. It to matters to me. Money. It matters to me. I, and I, out of I'm, respect, I'm I would like you to call me by the name that I'm asking you to call me by. Thank you. Your screen says Carrie Rosario. I'm verbalizing my name is Dr. Carrie Rosario. And it really speaks very negatively of you as a commissioner to be disrespectful. The Greensboro, North Carolina City Council agree that Collins was being disrespectful and they have now fired him. Hello, everybody. I'm David Schuster, and thanks for joining us. The vote on the city council determining zoning commissioner Collins was unanimous. Members said his exchange was outrageous. Dr. Carrie Rosario was 38 years old. She was participating in the virtual zoning meeting to weigh in on a new development that she fears might threaten her neighborhood's drinking water. Councilwoman Sharon Hightower attended the meeting and said to zoning commissioner Collins, quote, this is the ultimate disrespect of black people by one that is white and feels entitled and privileged to say and behave whatever with no consequences. This is what we deal with as African-Americans. For her part, Dr. Rosario told Inside Edition it felt like a combination of racism and sexism. I did see that, you know, this is uh, at the intersection of both racism and sexism, even if it's not something that was intent in Mr. Collins's heart. After Zoning Commissioner Collins was fired, he called Dr. Rosario and left a message for her apologizing. Dr. Rosario says she has accepted the apology and hopes this will be a learning experience for everybody. Collins runs a local construction company, and he does seem to have become more enlightened by all of this. He has now told local reporters that he understands his comments were out of line. Quote, there is no good excuse for my interaction with Dr. Rosario, so I will not try to offer one. Citizens deserve better. Collins is right. We need more citizen engagement in our communities, not less. And that means showing more understanding at the outset to people who have traditionally been ignored or marginalized. Younger women are often dismissed at every level of our society just because of how they look. And this gets compounded when a younger woman is also African-American. This professor was wise to introduce herself as Dr. Rosario to put everybody on notice about her background and to give her concerns more legitimacy. A doctor degree is worthy of great respect. And if somebody with that academic achievement shows up at a city council or zoning meeting to advocate on any issue, participants should be thrilled. Unfortunately, there is an anti-intellectual strain that runs deeply through too much of our society. We saw it a few months ago when a Wall Street Journal op-ed mocked the idea of calling the first lady Jill Biden, Dr. Jill Biden. Apparently, in some quarters of our society, PhDs are meaningless. This needs to change, and thankfully, it is changing. The Greensboro, North Carolina City Council acted swiftly, and that itself is progress. Uh -huh. All right. Uh, appreciate that support, MLR. Um, so, yeah. You know, brother sent that to me and he wanted to know uh, my thoughts. And so I thought I'd share with him and you all my first response to this. Right. So upon watching it, it was funny to me because one of the first things I thought about was, um, you know, yeah, I have had issues with with that, um, with white folk in particular, in terms of regarding my doctorate. 
the other issue is um, some of them see me as a, an ex-football player because of the, the ring I might, you know, the ring I occasionally wear. It's really for my doctorate, but they see a big gold ring and a big dude, and they just assume you played football. So I get a little bit of that. But in all honesty, in terms of having my my doctorate uh, acknowledged, even in the title, I've had more issues with that from black women than I have from anybody else. Give me an example. So about two months ago, um, I was looking for a housekeeper and I was looking through these different apps and I, and I was, it was suggested to me that I should look uh, for, you know, uh, people in Fresno, sisters in particular. Well, long story short, I had two sisters who owned their own companies that literally just stood me up. The third sister did come. I paid her the app. I paid her in advance. She came, she looked around in my house. Now, I am not wealthy, um, but, you know, what I have, I try to keep up well. You know what I mean? And she looked around, and one of the first questions she asked me, she looked at me and my son. I was disciplining him about, you know, some doing his homework. And she said, are you guys African-American? And I was like, yeah. And she just kind of looked surprised. And she was as well, but, you know, whatever. So that went a little longer. And when she was done, she said, well, what can I call you? I said, you can call me Dr. Johnson. Thank you for your work today. And she said, hmm. And she looked me up and down and she was like, well, um, you're welcome, Mr. Johnson. And she walked out. And I found that interesting. So I was like, hmm, there was no negative, you know, altercation. There was no argument. There was nothing that took place between us that would warrant that kind of dynamic. But that was the case. And then she refused to come back. I never heard from her again. I thought that was interesting. And so when I saw this story, you know, the whole question for me was, oh, okay. Well, if it's an issue of being acknowledged for our accomplishments, what does it mean when it takes place intra-racially within the racial group? Now, we've heard, you know, arguments for decades about, you know, women not being regarded, men being sexist, so on and so forth. But what happens when women don't regard the accomplishments of black men? What do we call that? How is that even perceived? Right. So, you know, obviously, when I talk about this story. Right. Um, this was that's what struck out to me. Right. So this is, you know, we, this whole issue about whether or not uh, women. Are, and, and again, this is not just happened with just the housekeeper. This has happened consistently. Matter of fact, it's even happened with women that I was intimate with who have master's degrees, doctorates. I've had them literally throw books across the room because of things that they didn't want to hear me say or refuse to acknowledge. I've, I've even had one, you know, on the phone to me and she had a doctorate as well. She said, you can't teach me nothing, nigga. And she hung up the phone. Now, mind you, she called maybe a minute prior to that and asked me a question about something I posted. I literally got two words out to explain it. And she screamed that out and hung the phone up, phone up. So when I think of these questions about respect and acknowledging, you know, accomplishments, academic ones, intellectual ones, academic accomplishments, most particularly, and that's the response that I see coming from, you know, whether you're talking about, you know, uh, working class all the way up through the academic elite. If those are the kind of responses that black men can attest to, then when we see videos like this, where you have, you know, these types of, of white men making these kinds of statements. BGS in the house, what's up? You know, when you have these kind of statements by white men, it's an interesting kind of dynamic. 
to ask the question. And it goes back to um, this whole question started a couple of years ago. Let's see if I can get this chair right. I think I was relaxing in too much. Let me get it. Uh, there we go. All right. So when you deal with this whole question of, as they say, the, the white people, black people, you got to critically ask what exactly that means. Um, so that was the first thing that came to mind. I wanted to answer him and I wanted to kind of extend that to you all just to give you some context for what it can be like to be a black male with a doctorate. I'm not at all suggesting that all black men have my experience, but I've talked to enough to know that this is an issue um, and it's not limited to white folk. It's not limited to black men being sexist toward black women. Uh, there is definitely a strong misandrous streak intra-racially within the community. Appreciate that dark side in regard to how black men who have accomplished uh, are received. And that definitely can take place, right? All right, so that's one of the first things I want to get off. There's two public announcements. Appreciate that, Eagle Eyes. Um, there's two public announcements that I wanted to kind of get on today. So that was the first. This whole question about, you know, receiving respect for accomplishments, you know, I find many black men don't, uh, regardless of what they've accomplished. As a matter of fact, there are many black men who haven't gotten degrees and yet still uh, earn quite a bit and are often not acknowledged. As a matter of fact, they are quite often denied um, when it comes to being received as viable partners. Um, appreciate that support, Romel, Romello. Um so they're often denied when it comes to being potential partners, because despite how much they make, they may not uh, they may be working class. Right. And that's a denial. And it needs to be called as such because it is. It's not an arbitrary thing. Hey, Mr. Blue Collar, I ain't seen you in a minute. Glad to see you, man. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, Golden Leopard. Appreciate that support. Um, so, yeah, those are definitely things we got to take into account and reconsider. Because there's more going on than, than than just this white black dynamic. There's an unspoken story, as far as black men are concerned, uh, when it comes to receiving respect within our own community, regardless of our accomplishments. So that's one. The second service announcement or public service announcement is really a question. And there's you know there's a couple things that kind of spawn this. So if you're not familiar, this comes from a piece uh, from NBCPhiladelphia.com, right? And it is entitled New Research on Shaken Baby Syndrome Helps Free Man Who Spent 15 Years in Prison. Clifton Jane Jones' case is among a nationwide series of recent legal challenges to what used to be accepted evidence on shaken baby syndrome. Right? Um, Jones' defense had argued the child died or his child had died after an accidental trip and fall in their home. Jones tripped over a shoe and was unable to break his stumble. He and his son fell to the wall, causing the baby to hit the back of his head until ultimately leading to his death, they had argued. Uh, but following the testimony of two experts who said shaken baby syndrome likely caused the child's death, Jones was sentenced to 25 years to life after a jury convicted him of involuntary manslaughter and child abuse. Appreciate that, Joe. Uh, and child abuse in the death of his son. In February, his attorney, um, Anjali Surinavasin, I'm not going to ruin that any further than I have, in partnership with the Northern California Innocence Project, filed a request for his release, arguing that although medical testimony may have been accurate at the time of the trial, recent medical advancements point 
to shaken baby syndrome testimony being false. For now, he wants to help those who are unjustly incarcerated or have received harsh sentences. So basically, this brother, due to an accident uh, that cost his his baby, his son, a uh, baby son's life, he was incarcerated with the assumption or with the argument being posed um, that he had shaken the baby, right? When it's found that uh, the research is inaccurate, and that is more than likely not the case, he was exonerated, right? But when I posted this story on various different platforms, I didn't hear very much at all in terms of an acknowledgement, uh, a suggestion that this was, you know, uh, an issue, was unfair. I didn't hear much of a response at all. One of the things that got me thinking, I was like, hmm, I wonder if black men can be forgiven even when they were innocent in the first place. I'm just kind of curious about that. And so I just kind of left it on the shelf in my mind, right? And then I saw this story, right? This is a piece I found on people.com entitled Michael Jackson's estate cannot be sued for sex abuse claims about late musician court rules. This came out April 27th, right? So yesterday, case against Michael Jackson's estate has been dismissed on Monday. An L.A. judge ruled that uh, Wade Robson, who accused or Robson, I don't know how you pronounce it, who accused the late musician of sex, sexual abuse as a child and sued Jackson's estate in 2013, cannot hold MJJ Productions and MJJ Ventures financially liable. The ruling also held that Jackson's companies had no legal ability to control his actions since he was the sole owner and could remove any and all of the board members without cause or notice. Robeson's uh, accusations were recently brought in the spotlight thanks to 2019's Leaving Neverland, Neverland documentary on HBO. Uh, Robeson and Safe Chuck, another person who accused Jackson of similar behavior, claimed they were abused by the singer in the late 80s and early 90s while staying with the singer at Neverland. Uh, Robeson's attorney told people in a statement that uh, such ruling had fatal flaws and that his client uh, would be appealing the decision if allowed to stand, the decision, the decision would set a dangerous precedent that would leave thousands of children working in the entertainment industry vulnerable to sexual abuse by persons in places of power. Uh, according to Finaldi, and, and, uh, you know, the children, our state, our, the children of our state deserve protection. We will not stop fighting until we secure the child's safety. You know. As for Jackson's estate, attorney Jonathan Stein-Sapir called Robeson's accusations frivolous. So at the crux of this... No hardcore evidence. People have been quite comfortable with accusing uh, Jackson of quite a bit. And yet, doing so even after his death. And when indications suggest that he may be innocent, or at least, at the very least, uh, there's not enough evidence to justify even paying him after his death. I wonder, does that change people's opinion? Do people at all consider, you know, um, reversing their direction? Does that change anything? You know, because it also made me think of another case. Of someone who still hasn't been forgiven of, of sorts, who actually had to disappear from the public eye for a couple of years over something that happened when he was a college student. Before he was famous before he was an actor, one of the things that took place with Nate Parker is he had, a, well, I guess we could call it adventurous sex with somebody in undergrad uh, in Pennsylvania. I think it was at Penn State. He and his roommate had sex with a girl. Right. 
It got to the point later where it went to court for accusations of rape. And the interesting thing about it is here you have this young man in college, no money, no fame, nothing to his name, found innocent by a court of or a jury of mostly white folk. I think there was like one black woman on the, on the uh, jury. What exactly does it take for a young black male being accused of violating a white woman? What does it take to be exonerated by a jury of white folk? You tell me. And it was years later, it was, I think it was over a decade later when he's, when he's famous that all of a sudden this comes and he's accused of being nothing more than a rank, low-level rapist. Over something he was exonerated you know, from in a court of law when he was still a young man with no fame or money to his name. These are the kind of things that, that, that for me, pose questions. Is there any innocence when it comes to black men who are accused, especially if they're innocent from the get-go, meaning they're exonerated? Does it change? Do people's opinions change? Do the accusations get withdrawn? Is there a public apology? What kind of restitution can black men deemed innocent get? I mean, if they manage to get out of prison, we know in terms of the Innocence Project, I think it's over 50% uh, of the exonerees of black men. Right? Might be higher than that. I'm getting some of my numbers mixed up. I think it's either 50 or 99. But my point is, it, 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 when you have black men that are, that are exonerated, is there any public acknowledgement? Apologies? Anything? Or are they just sent home with a sense of, you're lucky to be free? I don't know. So in terms of a public service now announcement, I would just say to my brothers, uh, be careful. Try not to put yourself in situations, if you can at all help it, where you're arbitrarily accused of things. Because for black men, arbitrary accusation is judgment. And in many ways, it tends to be final. And even if found innocent, you're sent home with a pat on the shoulder and that's it. I don't know if I've ever seen an extended or substantive apology extended to black males deemed innocent of arbitrary charges. Have you? You let me know because I'm curious to find out. I haven't seen it. So just that. Just wanted to get that out on the table and, and have, you know, have you consider something. What does it actually take? And I wonder, even amongst black men, when you look at these cases and you see these exonerations, do you receive it as innocence? Or have we learned to question ourselves to such a degree that we still assume guilt when there's been no evidence to justify the assumption? We just assume it. I've known black men like that. And I'm just curious, how deep does this go? Y'all tell me. All right. So y'all know the deal. Support the Institute for Black Male Studies. Uh, also support the Onyx Report show. You can go to instituteforblackmalestudies.com. You can click on merchandise and pick up anything there. Shirts, sweaters, the whole deal. Support the Institute. It is funded by me. Um, and of course, gracious supporters. There is no funding beyond that. So if you'd like to see more classes on there, more lectures, please make sure you visit the website. Uh, if you click on store, you can find all kinds of free lectures, free interviews, 
that you can take part in. There's also courses. There, there's two um, uh, webinars up there. One dealing with um, uh, this thing is falling. Apart. There we go. One dealing with um, the ten policies that undermine the black family. So check that out. All right. All right. So we get straight to it. Their eyes were watching God. Transcontextual misandry. What the hell is that? Well, when I wrote my 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 book on hip hop um, years ago, one of the things I talked about was trans the what I call the transcontextual meaning meaning basically you're pulling together different contexts, different time periods, different locations, different cultural situations, uh, and you're connecting them together. And we often do this in a variety of different ways. One of the big, biggest ways we, we perform the transcontextuals when we talk about what it means to be African-American, right? You talk about black folk or we call black folk now arbitrarily. I, wouldn't, I shouldn't even say arbitrarily. You had Africans that were chosen from the continent based on the skill set that whites assumed they had based on the regions they lived in. And they were chosen very specifically in that regard and brought to the Western world. When you talk about the African-American community in North America, of course, um, you're talking about a hodgepodge of Africans chosen from different parts of the mostly Western to Central African continent, right? Didn't always share a language, didn't always share a cultural orientation. We didn't always share, we, we didn't share very much of that in many instances. Sometimes we did, but in many instances, we didn't. As a matter of fact, again, we talked about the, the bulk of women that were taken. One of the things that Dr. Claude Anderson talks about is many of them weren't even here until about 60 years before the Civil War. Meaning you had a good 200 years almost where black men were almost exclusive. I mean, of course, there were some women, but the overwhelming majority of enslaved Africans brought were men. Women were brought just a few years before the Civil War where you had the formal end to enslavement. And yet we talk about the African-American community as a coherent unit. I mean, you can really make this argument for any group. I'm not limiting limiting it to African-Americans, but this notion of, of what it means to be one group is transcontextual. Different parts of the continent, different cultural orientations, different languages, different belief systems, different religious structures, different, or I should say, spiritual structures. You know, you have all kinds of differences, and yet we still, hell, we regard Africa as one group. In many instances, it's a continent, right? So this is what I mean by when, when I talk about transcontextual. I'm talking about the ways in which things are placed together in a very specific way to create what is often uh, an attempt to uh, you know produce kind of a linear narrative right about any particular group well in this context we're going to talk about we're not we're going to talk about the film uh their eyes were watching god and uh this is a piece that is uh done 1937 by one zora neale hurston celebrated as a member of the harlem renaissance and celebrated in her own right as everything from a writer to an activist to an anthropologist, right? Um, you know, whip smart, uh, right? Okay, we got 232 watching. Please like, share, subscribe, donate, and join, right? But incredibly intelligent, you know, sharp, but in many ways, uh, died in isolation, right? So here she, now Now, what, what, what she, she became known um, 
early on in terms, especially in terms of, you know, Harlem Renaissance and whatnot. But then she kind of died in obscurity and she was resurrected, if you will, by one Alice Walker. Right. So Alice Walker um, kind of finds her unmarked grave, as it says, and, or at least that's what we're told and and begins to, you know, reintroduce Black America most particularly, but, you know, the world to the works of uh, Zora Neale Hurston. Now, I read Hurston for the first time in college, in undergrad, and I took an Africana Studies literature course. Now, what I did not know is that this was mainly a Black feminist course, and I've said this to you guys before. You know what I mean? It's one thing if you take, you know, gender studies courses, women's studies courses, you know, at least you, you're walking into it with that with that in mind. But, you know, I've had, you know... I've lost track of how many black feminist courses I have taken in undergrad, not knowing that that's what it was. But this, that's, you know, when I took literature uh, in Africana studies and, and, you know, this was about 1995, uh, it was a black feminist course. Uh, Mr. Heat, appreciate that support. And so in taking this class, I was given more than just, you know, an overall reading of Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. I was given a feminist narrative, a feminist worldview that posited that Black women were the most oppressed group and that they were oppressed uh, you know, by mainly Black men and Black men were responsible for the ills of their lives. Right? And so, now obviously, I think the biggest example of that is Alice Walker's work with The Color Purple, which I've kind of mentioned on this show before, and that, that template for Color Purple set the narrative for how Black men were to be seen post-1980, right? That template was in place. Now, the reintroduction of Their Eyes Were Watching God, again, written in 1937, it's posited as an almost post-1980s Black feminist work, right? And you know, with that in mind, I'm not going to talk about the book, which I read a while ago, but the reason this comes up because there's a couple things that fed into what made me want to do tonight's show, right? First of which was um, I was showing, well, actually, you know, I think you guys saw a short video I did earlier before my computer crashed when um, my son and I were watching Love Jones. That's one of the things that got me, right? This, this issue where women did not have to be accountable. And, you know, in hindsight, <clears throat> excuse me, in hindsight, one of the reasons that women didn't have to be accountable was because, you know, what we were learning in these films in the 1990s, 1980s, was that we were to see things from her vantage point. We were to prioritize her worldview and in doing so, thus make her innocent, thus make her not have to be accountable, thus make her a central figure that not only educated men on accepting her priority in life, but also educating women on whether or not they needed to be accountable, right? Talked about this. You watch Love Jones, you'll see a very little accountability for female behavior, but an expectation and a demonstration in the role, in the actors, not the actors, but in the performance and, you know, in terms of what the characters did, an expectation that men, right? Men apologize not only for what they do, but for what women, what women do. Whatever mistake she makes, whatever misstep she makes, men gallantly have to accept responsibility for and articulate an apology doing so that exonerates her from having to be accountable. And we've gotten used to that. I think many men have gotten used to that, especially in the 80s and 90s. Black men 
were really introduced to this. I was re-watching a video Minister Jap did with Kevin Samuels on the 1990s. And I love that video because it really does explain so much of what I, I even remember from the 1980s and the 1990s when it came to courting, dating, mating, the whole deal. We were taught chivalry. We were taught priority. She was the priority. She was the prize, if you will. She was the gift. And in many ways, it kind of even feeds a little bit into what I was talking about earlier in, in regard to this use of doctor as a title, this use of acknowledging accomplishments. Why acknowledge your accomplishments? You don't acknowledge the accomplishments of the help. And that's what black men in many ways were seen as the help. Lesser beings, objects in the background to serve as white noise, if you will. Um, we were useful for certain things, but beyond that, we were not to be taken seriously in any significant way, right? So that's one of the things I noticed watching Love Jones with my son, and, and I was happily surprised at how well he was able to identify things that I didn't see as a young man watching it. So that was the first thing. You know, I recently saw Color Purple, so obviously that's on the forefront of my mind as well. But here's the third one. I was talking to BGS the other day, because sometimes I might call him, uh, Christmas, appreciate that cash app. Sometimes I'll call him between classes, you know, um, if I'm a little bored, see what he's up to. And since he started working with his grandson again, I don't want to interrupt. But I, I called him the other day and I said, you know, I'm showing my students their eyes were watching God, the film, right? I was showing the film that came out starring Halle Berry, right? And if you haven't seen it, it's interesting. Um, let's see. Oh, there we go. Something here. Usually having stuff up. Um, so this was made in 2005, right? And as you can see, it's starring Halle Berry, uh, Ruben Santiago Hudson. Now Ruben is dope. I'm gonna show you. I'll get to Ruben in a little bit. Ruben is dope. If you if you've never seen Lackawanna Blues, uh, I think that's supposed to be. Uh, partly his life story, uh, and he had a lot to do with it. He was also acting in it. Brilliant actor, really like his work. He was in that. Uh, Michael Ely, Terrence Howard, a um, number of people played in that film. And of course, as you can see on the screen, one Ruby D, um, formerly of the coupling of Ozzie Davis and Ruby D, um, but brilliant actress. Um, anyway. So this film comes out in 2005, and for many of us that enjoyed Zora Neale Hurston's work, this was, it was great to finally see on screen. And this was, what, what, what I should have been prepared for, even though I wasn't thinking along these lines in 05, was that this was uh, an Oprah Winfrey project. I should have told me all I needed to know, but I was a little naive about that at the time, right? So... Watching this story, I, I started showing it to my students, which in hindsight, you know, of course, is a bit of a mistake, but um, I was trying to make a point. So this is in a class that, uh, that I teach on a regular basis, although I hadn't taught this one in about three years and uh, a critical thinking about race course. Right. So I'm teaching the class because what I'm trying to do is discuss, you know, these nuances uh you know, with black men and women, race, identity, so on and so forth. Right. So I'm showing the film. I'm trying to find where I put some information about it. Uh, here we go. Uh, okay. And 
what it what, what it fundamentally deals with, at least in terms of how feminists have presented the, the book and the film to us, is how one Black woman experiences the world. And she experiences th- this kind of journey of finding herself through dealing with the abuse uh, of men, the, the, the dehumanizing treatment, the exploitation, uh, the objectification of Black men. And there are four major interactions she has with men uh, that kind of frame her life. Right? And this is kind of the story. Now, obviously, if you ain't read the book or watched the film since 1937 or 2005, I don't think I should have to say spoilers, but it is what it is. You know, stay at your own risk or whatever. But so there's four men that she comes into contact with. Now, at this part, this is this is the early part of the film, which you're seeing here, where she's living with her grandmother. And there are very they're, 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 they don't say very much about her parents. The indication you get is that she is a mixed lineage. Her mother was a little buck wild and left her with her grandmother. So she's pretty, she's mixed, she's raised by a grandmother, and her grandmother is actually pretty black pill. Her grandmother pretty much knows how the world works, wanted her to go to school and, uh, and get a degree, uh, but her name is Janie. So this is uh, Halle Berry playing Janie, right, the main character. And Janie's a little wild. She's a little wild. She actually has, oh, there we go. All right. So she actually has an interaction as a young woman that scares her grandmother. She's just hanging out, you know, under a tree, and really, you know, they use a lot of symbolic flowery, flowery language. But she has her first orgasm under the tree. She's discovering her womanhood, and then she sees this cat, Johnny Taylor down by the water. He, you know, he's fishing, he's walking back home, or presumably we don't get any inner monologue and we don't get any, you know, narrative about Johnny himself, let alone what he's thinking. She takes an interest. It looks like she's about to get down with him and her grandmother catches her and is furious because she's worried that Janie's just going to get knocked up, you know, whatever. So what she does is she says, all right, that's it. You're a woman, you're ready. It's time for you to get married. She said, I found you a suitor. Now, Johnny in and of himself, we're not told much about him. If anything, the grandmother describes the potential uh, mating (laughs) with Johnny Taylor as, you know, just a mistake. You know, that's all we're told. And what we can presume is Johnny has no money. That's really the issue I think the grandmother has. Janie doesn't really care. She just you know, wants to experience things. So the grandmother decides to hook her up with this gentleman here, Mr. Logan Killicks. Now, I didn't, I didn't get the name of the actor who played Johnny. He was only in it for a quick second. Um, but uh, Mel Winkler is uh, the brother who plays here. And I've seen him in a lot of stuff. He's a good actor. Um, and I think, yeah, he died. Oh, my God, he died in 2020. I didn't know he died just last year. I didn't hear anything about it. Oh, man. Well, shout out to that brother. He's uh, from 1941 to 2020. Has a long career um, in Hollywood. I've seen him in a number of things. I like him as an actor. Um, nevertheless, he plays Logan Killix, right? And so Logan Killix is an old man who um, is, how would I put this? Um, wealthy from the salt of the earth, in a sense. Right? He, he's a farmer. He owns 60 acres of land. Uh, he kind of built himself from that. But he is not by any means... Um, he doesn't have status. He has he has a degree of wealth. He owns land, but he's not, you know, 
He doesn't have any status. And of course, he's much older. Janie's about 17. He's at least in his 60s, somewhere in his 60s and 70s. But he still works every day, right? Farming. Um, and he expects a woman who can do that. He wants a woman who can cook, who can clean, who can help him farm, the whole deal. Right? And this is where you get this narrative uh, from Zora Neale Hurston that the black woman is the, the mule of the earth kind of thing. So he's been popping around and he makes an arrangement with the grandmother to take her on as a wife. And this is common. Early part of the 20th century, most especially, it's, it's fairly common. I mean, even my grandmother-in-law, who's since passed uh, you know, a number of years ago, piece to Miss Alberta, I think she was married at 13. You know what I mean? These were this. I mean, this was not abnormal for the time. But, you know, you know, Jay, he, he was a good dude. Right, Rodney. Um, he was a good dude, but, you know, he was he was much older than she and she didn't find life with him exciting. You know, she wanted to see the world. She wanted to do things. And he was just about getting the work done. And so at a particular point, she runs off. And leaves him. But she does say to him one night before she leaves, she asks him what he would do if she leaves. Right? Well, he kind of rolls over and he says, you just do what you got to do. I mean, he gets it. He gets it. She's a young, pretty woman. Her SMV is high. She has options. And he's just basically like, look, I own 60 acres of land. I have something to bring to the table. But if that's not good enough, you got to do what you got to do. And she does. She leaves him. But she doesn't leave him just for nothing. She meets this man here before she does. Right. And this is Ruben Santiago, the actor. If you're not familiar, I'm sure you may have seen his face in a number of things. Like I said, if you go watch Lackawanna Blues, this brother is powerful. He's a great actor. I love his work. Right. But he plays Jody Starks. And Jody Starks is a young man who's on the rise. Right. He's looking for a black town in Florida named Eatonville. And he wants to go there and, and really get help the town get going. And so he's on his way when he meets Janie, right? Just letting go of all the pigs that uh, the farmer told her to slaughter for dinner. You know, he went to town. She's pissed off. He didn't take her to town with him. And so she gets back at him by letting all the pigs go. And she meets Jody. Now Jody's well-dressed, educated, intelligent, uh, has money, well-spoken, and he basically tries to seduce her. He lets her know she's too fine to be working on some farm, so on and so forth. So he shoots the game at her, you know. Now, whether or not it works strictly, strictly on the strength of the game is one question. But the fact that he offers excitement is another. And so he says, look, I'll be leaving tomorrow morning. This is where I'll be. You know, if you want to go, come on. And she does. Right. And they take off. And they take off down to a town in Eatonville that actually existed. As a matter of fact, this is a town that uh, Zora Neale Hurston was actually raised in. It's a black town in Florida. But in the book and in the film, when they get to this town, it's actually just a small piece of land that one of the white former slave owners, um, you know, kind of eh, somewhere between gave and sold, but kind of gave to the town. It's just a small piece of land. And he gets there, realizes what it is and that it hasn't developed in any way. And he begins to build it up. He buys more land from the white landowner and um, starts to sell black people, you know, land and help build homes. And so they build up this town. He starts a general store. He becomes mayor of the town. Now, just in those three interactions right there with those three men, Johnny Taylor, Logan Killicks and Jody Starks, what we get is that or what we're supposed to get 
is that these men have participated in exploiting Janie, right? Johnny was exploiting her and that he was going to hit it, you know, and, you know, just upon seeing her, she's giving him rhythm. He was going to hit it. Something about that is, you know, but he has, he has no face. He has no story. He has no inner voice. Still, you know, there's a negativity there. Logan is a problem because he just wants her to work. He doesn't want to venerate her. He doesn't put her on a platform. Uh, he, he's, he digs her beauty, but at the end of the day, he's looking for a functional woman, even though he's much older, but because he's older and unattractive, um, it's kind of viewed that he's disgusting and uh, for him to expect her to work or to do anything of such nature, it's a dehumanizing venture, right? For him to, for him to make these assumptions. And then we get to Jody. Now, Jody, you know, building up this town uh, is interested in a trophy wife. He wants a wife that looks pretty on his arm so he can sell an image of a very particular type of masculinity. And this is his sin. He is viewed as, you know, misogynistic and oppressive because he doesn't want Janie to be herself. He wants her to be a trophy wife. Now, in the, in, in the context of that, he puts them in a two-story house. They are the richest family in town. Um, and they kind of allude to the idea that she doesn't really care much for the wealth. She just wants someone to treat her well. There's a particular point where they have public, a couple of major public arguments uh, where at one point he hit her. You know, because she was you know, embarrassing him and she was talking about, you know, his body, his, his age, uh, his penis size, all these kind of things to in front of the whole town after he had made a statement right, about her. He was trying to make her out to be older than she was because he was older than her. And he didn't like the fact that other men in town were attracted to her. Right. So they have this public, you know, bashing, you know, argument. And from that moment on, for the la the rest of his life, she sleeps in a different room. There's presumably no sex or intimacy. And from then on, she is the good wife. She does what she says. She covers his body uh, or she does what he said. He covers her body, covers her hair, brings his meals, so on and so forth. But she's quiet and she's unhappy. Right. This is the gilded cage narrative. Right. So she, she's oppressed by one man that just wants to have sex with her and we know nothing about him. She's oppressed by another that just wants to use her as a mule. At least this is what we're told. And then she's oppressed by Jody because she's dehumanized and left in a gilded cage. And then eventually Jody dies. Now, the whole town sees her as, um, you know, she's, she's it. She's the it woman. She's not only beautiful, she's wealthy. And uh, there are a number of men who have been attracted to her for years, but it's 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 kind of subtly suggested that the only reason they really want her is so that they could kind of um, assume Jody's position. Right. And then we get to the reason that Oprah says she was excited to do this film. Tea cake. Right. Tea cake is played by Michael Ely, um, as you as you can well tell. And he is the heartthrob, right? This is the this is the, the 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 whole point of the book of the film is to show the, the relationship she has with T Cake. And T Cake is, you know, he's a he's a gambler. He's just a roving man. He works wherever he works. You know, whether he's doing something under the table or over the table, he doesn't really have you know much for him, much to himself. Um, and you know, when he meets her, he doesn't really put her on a pedestal. At the same time, he doesn't he, he, you know, dehumanize her. He treats her as a woman. Now, this is written in 1937. So there's some things he does that are a little strange. Of course, at one point, he hits her. You know, at another point, uh, he steals her money when they're on a trip and 
throws a whole little feast or whatever because he just wants to know what it's like to be rich. Now, this is that's from the book. But in the movie, he takes her money, gambles it, and loses it. So, you know, and, and her biggest fear that is that she's going to leave him. But it's an interesting story because he's younger, he's handsome, he, you know, women all want him, and he falls in love with Janie. So this older widow, right, living in this big house. I uh, appreciate that original man. Right. And Mr. Uh, Mr. Donnie, right. Tea cake is dark in the book, but in the film, you know, he's light skinned, she's light skinned, you know, whatever. But, you know, when you look at the story, this is where it goes, right? And so at eventually, there's eventually this point where the town is trying to, you know, they have these narratives in place about older women who are widows with money being taken by young, handsome men that are just trying to rob them. And everybody's saying the same thing is going to happen to Janie, right? So, you know, they go on a trip and they decide they're just going to continue to travel, live off to just life. And she actually says, I have plenty of money, but he's gallant. He says, we're not going to use any of your money. You know, we're just going to live life together. And what I have is what you have. And we just live off that. And we're going to live off what, what we can do together. So they just, you know, they kind of travel around from there on just that, not using her money because she's considered rich, right? Long story short, they get to Florida, they get to the Everglades, they're out there picking cucumbers and just having sex and enjoying life and being free, right? Free of all the constraints of social performance. And then there's a flood that hits. You always got to have tragedy. You know what it is. There's a flood that hits. He sacrifices himself to save her because there's a dog with rabies that's about to attack her. He takes the bite saves her life. And then when the flood recedes, it's becomes clear that he has rabies and he starts to go crazy and eventually tries to kill her because it wouldn't be a black feminist story if the man didn't try to kill her at some point. Cause that's what we all do. Right. I mean, less than 1% of black men kill their spouses and the percentage of black women that kill theirs isn't much, it isn't very far from that. You know, they're, they're damn near equal statistically speaking, but you know, and in, in all these stories, black men try to kill their spouses at one point. And if you've been Michael Ely, you also played in the, the you know, the uh, Tyler Perry version of uh, For Colored Girls. So you also throw your kids out of a window, but, you know, that's just black males were trifling like that. So, you know, he tries to kill her, you know, and um, she has to take a shotgun to him. Right? She has to take a shotgun to him. Now, I looked up character one character analysis of tk that i thought was interesting and this was the explanation made of his character it says while tk is vital to Janie's development um he is not an indispensable part of her life a crucial truth that is revealed when Janie shoots him he plays a role in her life helping her to better understand herself by teaching her how to shoot a gun ironically uh, yeah because at one point he took her on a date and he started told her how to he showed her how to shoot a gun he provides her with the tools that ultimately kill him. Janie's decision to save herself rather than yield her life up to the crazy tea cake points to her increasing sense of self and demonstrates that tea cake's ultimate function in the novel is not to make Janie dependent on him for happiness, but to help her find happiness and security within herself. Now, I should say this. When she leaves after killing tea cake, she walks all the way back. It's what's well, suggested. She walks back to Eatonville. And so at the beginning of the story, you see her walking into town barefoot with overalls on covered in mud. 
And everybody just assumes that like other women in the town, TK basically robbed her and used her. And that's what we get. That's the that's the cliff notes for their eyes were watching God. And I remember really enjoying this book in undergrad, mainly because Tea Cake was presented as a good man. See, at that time, uh, when I was coming up and black feminists were telling these stories, there was never an example of a good man. It was case after case of bad men. So this was the first time that I saw a good man. This is probably some of the excitement I had a few years later when I saw Love Jones and Lorenz Tate's character, Darius Love Hall was supposedly also a good man. One of the two very few instances where I saw that. Matter of fact, the third one I remember was Wesley Snipes in, um, oh man, Waiting to Exhale. Even though he was married to a white woman or his character was, he was still considered a good man because he was supportive and you know loving to a black woman who'd been through hell with another one. And the interesting thing about that story is this time the, the trifling nigga in that story was rich. So the idea being that whether you're talking about uh, a street brother uh, uh, or a working class brother or a rich brother, we were all trash, right? But at least in those three instances, you got to see what black feminists were positing as a good man. Of course, the other one would be uh, Terry McMillan's, um, what's the one where she goes to Jamaica? Y'all know what it is. I wasn't planning to mention it. It popped in my, into my head, but I don't. Of course, uh, we don't uh, we don't talk about <clears throat> yeah Stella. Thank you, Mister Donnie. Right, how Stella got a groove back. Right, that was a good man as well. Right, and in each of these instances, what I notice for the most part is these men were malleable to the women that they were dealing with. In other words, they were they could be shaped. They weren't self-defined in any way that challenged her or moved her beyond, um, you know, her boundaries. Now, with this one, they would they would suggest that with TK, that he was, you know, that he pushed her beyond her boundaries. But really, all he did was he kind of serviced her in a way where she could call the shots, but she, he wasn't, you know, overbearing like Jody was her 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 husband, right? And so because of that, he was inherently a good man. It's interesting when you get to see these these de definitions of good men from women like this. But yeah, in, in many instances, they're malleable black books. I agree with that, Gemini. Yeah. What's up, Officer Faulkner? Good to see you in here. Um, but yeah, you know, so so in these stories, you, you rarely had good men up to a certain point. And then when you did, they were problematic for their own reasons. I talked about Love Jones and the way Darius's character, you know, he wasn't he was fairly immature on one level. But on another, he, he would start to hold her accountable and then he would take accountability for her missteps as well as his own. Right. This is what we were told to do as gallant, you know, uh, self-sacrificial gentlemen. Right. And he kind of did that consistently, even though even if her treatment was horrible. Right. That was the idea. Right. So. We, so coming back to this tea cake is presented you know, out of this, he's taken out of this, transcontextually taken out of this 1937 context, reformulated in the 1980s as some kind of good man. But really at the core of it, he ended up, ends up becoming this sacrificial figure who dies, saving her life. And at the end of the day, he's nothing more than a part of her life that helps her find herself. 
And the interesting thing was when I started to think about this, I was uh, I was like, you know, I don't know how many of these stories we've ever really talked about from black men's perspective. Now, it's one thing to do what I call a black masculinist analysis of a film, but it's still a slightly different thing to actually look at the, the look at the story from the vantage point of the men in these black feminist narratives. Right. So if you take if you take, you know, somebody like a tea cake and you look at how this story might seem on. on well, actually, I want to start with Jody. You can take it from Jody's standpoint. So Jody is considered this overbearing, exploitive man who's wealthy and domineering and he's abusive and all this kind of stuff. She ain't exactly move out of that house even after he died. When things got tough, that was the first place she went back to. She never gave up any of his money. She actually had no problem with none of that. She actually played the role. Appreciate that, Alpha Sigma. She played the role of good wife, right, um, when it was useful for her to do so. So it's presented as she just kind of, uh, what you call it, uh, she evolves and learns as she goes. We all do. But really, what I saw taking place is that here you have this man that built a whole town. And she, as fundamentally frustrated as she was with him, had no problem taking everything he had left her. So here you have a mixed woman who in the 1930s marries two rich men and builds off what they have, right? Because at the end of the day, even if she stayed with Logan, all right, officer, appreciate that. Um, You know, it, 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 what was I saying? Oh, so even if she stayed with Logan, he owned 60 acres at that time, right? Early part of the 20th century. So he's still wealthy. Jody, even more so, builds up a town, buys homes. He owns much of the, he actually sells the land for many people buy their homes on, and she profits from this. But she's thoroughly unhappy the whole time, and it's suggested she's unhappy because he's abusive. But she never leaves, which I found interesting. For a character that's not supposed to care about money, you know, whatever, she just wants to be happy. She had no problem, you know, um, going back to that. As a matter of fact, the very beginning of the story starts with her going back home, right? Going back to the home that Jody built. So she enjoys that, right? And that's one of the things he provides her. He provides her with wealth and status. See, Logan provided her with wealth. But she didn't have status, meaning she had to get she was expected to work in the field with him. And this was beneath her because she was pretty. See, Zora Neal. Appreciate that. No one. Zora Neal understood SMV. She understood SMV. And the grandmother in the in the story who was trying to place Jamie with a, a wealthy man, she understood SMV. They basically figured out that she was young, mixed and beautiful and could therefore claim something on the market. Well, the very first man she marries may have not have been the most attractive man, but he was wealthy. And they didn't actually show how other people in town dealt with him, but that was a pretty big get for women in general to have a man like that. And then she went beyond him and of course found a man with even more. So, but the difference between them. So here you go from Johnny Taylor, just some guy walking by, you know, who went fishing, uh, who was, you know, the most they showed you was that he was supposed to be handsome. She went beyond beauty and she found wealth. 
but no status. Ergo, that wasn't good enough. And then she went from that to wealth and status, but that wasn't good enough. And upon Jody's death, she went back to what was sexy, and this was supposed to also be life-altering and revealing. And when that fell through, she went back to what she already had claimed, right? So what I see when I watch these stories, as I grow and change, you know, when I was, ooh, I must have been like 19 when I read this, it was sold to me as this romantic story about a woman's transformation. What I saw in these stories was a character who basically leveraged her beauty for what she could get on the market, took it, and was thoroughly unhappy at each turn. And, and you know, finally had to find herself at the expense of at least three of these men. Thematically, I would say four. But, you know, the, the point of the film for me, the point of the story, even, and I would say this with the book as well, she finds herself at the expense of these men's sacrifices for her. Because that's one of the things I found interesting about it. Each one of them sacrificed in a very particular way, but it's not a way that's necessarily received as a valid sacrifice. I mean, hell, even T-Cake's sacrifice of his very life isn't really regarded to any great degree. We focus more on the tragedy that she had to kill him and not the fact that he sacrificed his life to save her. Because none of that was really important. As you saw with the, the character analysis, the only thing that's important is that she'd be allowed to continue to grow and live. Three of those four men are dead. Or at least that we know of. I mean, the implication with Logan is that he was old. Uh, so, you know, we don't know anything about Johnny. Like I said, they didn't talk about him after that interaction she had that once, one time at the beginning. But it's presumed that at least Logan is probably dead. Right? Because she's actually with uh, Jody for, you know, a good long period of time. I think she said over 20 years. So you have these men. They're backdrops to the story. They're white noise in the background, but they, but they are also footsteps in her story. And they're nothing more, regardless of what they sacrifice, regardless of what they provide. And none of them are worthy to live life with her. This is the interesting part to me. Right? The implication is supposed to be that tea cake is worthy, but tragedy strikes. But I would argue that in this narrative, and it's not as much about Zora Neale Hurston as it is the way the story is imagined in this post-1980s context, this black feminist context. None of these men are worthy of the black woman. You can be the steps toward her rise. You can provide in the background. You can sacrifice your life. But ultimately, you are not worthy of providing. You're expendable, as my boy Malika said in the comments. You're disposable. You're worthy to contribute. You're not worthy to be acknowledged for it. You are not even a central part of her story. You are just something there. Now, even to the extent that you may believe that about life in general, you don't really get to see that when it comes to black men in film. Black women are not allowed to be presented as footsteps on his rise to, to, to life or his rise to prominence or even his, his advancement in knowing himself. You're not allowed to present black women as mere objects for that, right? But it's okay for black men to be. Somehow that's acceptable. 
not right. And I'm not clear why, but it's something we, we, we can do. You can serve, you can die. See, and it, and it's, it's, it's starting to seep past, you know, just race. Some of you on, on my Facebook page and YouTube, as a matter of fact, I posted this story in the comment section or the uh, commentary where, um, or I'm sorry, the community section. I told a story about a conversation I had yesterday with one of my students, right? She called in, this Latina, unmarried Latina student. She called in to find, to get permission in the writing class I'm teaching to see if she could write a story. Now, I wasn't surprised what she wanted to write because for the most part, the majority of my students, my female students in particular, especially if they've taken a gender studies course, they all want to write the same paper. Uh, and if they're Latina, the, the paper becomes about um, machismo. You know, they want to write about this oppressive machismo in Mexican men and Latino men, right? And it's interesting. Shout out to my boy, David MGTOW Ibmore. They never want to talk about uh, the, the companion piece to machismo, right? So machismo is this, you know, basically it's, it's you know, Latino patriarchy, right? That's essentially in a nutshell what it is, right? Just this hyper-masculine, domineering Latino male image. And, and, you know, and, and but there's a companion piece to that called Marianismo that nobody talks about. I've never even heard of. And it's kind of like asking a room of people if they know what misandry is. Right? We, I used to do that when I start lectures. I'd ask how many people, you know, by show of hands, know what misogyny is and every hand would go up. And when I say how many of you know what misandry is, every hand would go down. So the hatred of women is common knowledge. The hatred of men, nobody even knows what that is. So similarly, when you talk about machismo, the, the companion piece to that is marianismo, which is a term I had actually never heard of, right? But it's 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 actually, as uh, my boy get extended it to me, um, right? produced by political scientist Evelyn Stevens in her 1973 essay, right? Marianismo, the other face of machismo, right? And it refers to, generically speaking, the devotion to Mary, right? And it's supposed, it is the supposed ideal of true femininity that women are supposed to live up to, modest, virtuous, uh, sexually abstinent until marriage, and then faithful and subordinate to their husbands, so on and so forth. But beyond that, though, it actually is also about um, the cult of female spiritual superiority, which teaches that women are semi-divine, morally superior to, and spiritually stronger than men. Right. This is the companion piece to machismo. I've never once had a student ask me if they could write about that. But my point here, right, she wanted to write about the machismo in men and she wanted to do it from the vantage point of her grandmother. She interviewed her grandmother and she said, you know, she was offended by her grandfather's machismo and she couldn't understand why her grandmother put up with it. Uh, and she wanted me to, she wanted to know if she could write about that. Not like, again, like I get about 40 students a year to want to write the same paper. So I'm like, you know, normally I'm just like, whatever, just write it. This time I decided to ask her some questions. So long story short, what turned out to be was that she, her grandmother and her grandfather were married for over 50 years. And her grandmother was a stay at home mother and wife raised five kids. Now the grandfather, did he leave? She never said he was abusive. She never said he abandoned the family. In fact, she said he worked for 50 years picking vegetables in the fields. Y'all ever do that? Even for a day, even for half a day. You know how hard that is? He did it for, according to her, 50 years. 
And you know what? He did it for 12 hours a day. 12 hours a day. You've ever picked vegetables before in a field? 12 hours a day, 50 years. The only word she could think of to describe her grandfather was machismo. This man put food on the table and kept his wife from having to work for 50 years. As a granddaughter in college, and the only thing she could think of to describe him was machismo. You know, I went through and I did, uh, you know, well, now I would call it my, my Kevin Samuels, but I've been doing that for with students for years. You know, I, I pulled up the, 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 the Wall Street Journal uh, website. What percent are you? I asked her what she wanted in life. She said, I want, I think she said either three to five kids. She wanted to be married. And I said, well, how much do you think it'll take? She said, I don't, I don't know how much he would have to earn, but I don't want to have to work. I said, understood. So we started with $85,000 a year. So is that all right? She said, cool. I said, all right. So you get married tomorrow. You marry a Latino dude with 85000 a year. She said, cool. I said, well, according to this, he's in the top 7% of, of Latino men. What exactly do you bring to him that makes it worth his while to raise five kids with you? And at 85,000, he's in the top 7%. She had no answer. And yet her grandfather, who clearly wasn't making 85,000 a year, toiled in the fields for 50 years, raised the family, kept the wife from having to work, and the family thrived enough for her to be in college as a granddaughter to that man. And he's not worth more than the word machismo. This is getting deep. And it's moving beyond racial and cultural boundaries. This, you know, this feminism in many ways, this type of blatant um, toxic feminism, just like a virus, moves beyond cultural grounds. It's, it's economically incentivized, in fact, particularly in the West, backed by policy, with the central idea being that you too, like Janie, and their eyes are watching God, can be provided for by the state. So even that becomes a backdrop to your story and you don't even have to really think where those resources come from. You just know you're going to get them on the merit of being a woman. Here's the thing. When you get any kind of resource after a period of time, you no longer think about where it comes from. I mean, I, you know, look, if I literally sent you a thousand dollars a week and it's their clockwork style, like every Sunday, whatever, every, every, every Saturday you go to your mailbox is there. Appreciate that, Rick. If I send you a thousand dollars a week and like clockwork, it's there every Saturday in your mailbox. How long before you start to include that as your income? How long will you describe that as some gift from an angel? How long does it take before it just becomes, oh, this is just what I get. And how then does it change your outlook on the world, right? Where you start to look down on people that don't have as much as you and say, well, why can't you just get it together? I've got it together. Why can't you? How long does it take before that happens? When you do, when you're doing your bills and that $4,000 a month just works its way into your income. You see what I mean? What I'm saying to you is as long as these kinds, these types of resources are extended, whether they come from individual men, like in this story, particularly the likes of Jody Starks, who spend years toiling and building up just to extend to their wives. And this was, you know, prior to, you know, at, uh, at will divorce, or whatever, you know, 
this is prior to that, right? So at, at, by the time you get to the 1970s, she can just divorce him, take half his shit. She didn't have to spend 20 years unhappy. But how long does it take before these resources that are extended, whether they're from a grandfather who worked 50 years in a field, Jody Starks, who spent 20 plus years building up a town, Logan Killicks built up 60 acres and you didn't have to be with him before he built it up, but you had no problem taking that as long as it was available to you, at least until you could find something that suited you better. Or like my young Latina student looking at her mother as this oppressed entity when in actuality, her mother was very clear about what kind of labor she did. Her grandmother was very clear what kind of labor she didn't want to do. So one of the things I asked her is I said, did, uh, I said, uh, were there other women that worked in the fields with your grandfather? She said, yes. I said, did you ever consider that your mother was quite, your grandmother was quite strategic and not wanting to be one of them? No response. Grandmother wasn't an oppressed being. Now, if you tell me she was beaten on and raped and, you know, that's a different discussion. But she didn't say any of those things. She just said she didn't like that she had to submit to her. She didn't like that her grandmother had to submit to her grandfather. I said, wow. So he can work in a field for 50 years, enough to where she doesn't have to, but he can't even have the basic respect of cooperation in his household. Appreciate that, Jabril. Sa. I don't know if, if I pronounced that right, Sa, but I appreciate that. But he can't even have the basic right to cooperation in a home he's providing without it being considered an oppressive entity, an oppressive engagement. When in actuality, I would say the grandmother went out on that deal. She didn't spend 12 hours a day toiling in the field. She didn't. Now, she did her duty according to her granddaughter. She played her role in the household and, and, and her grandmother, her granddaughter witnessed, you know, the struggles of that. At, at one point I asked her, I said, did you ever trail your grandmother and follow her for the day and do what she did? She said, yeah. I said, okay. So did you ever trail your grandfather? Did you go out in the fields with him and work with him? She said, oh, hell no. That work is too hard. I said, oh, that work is too hard. Hmm. Interesting. Essential. Appreciate that. This is what I'm getting at when I talk about this. What I'm fundamentally saying is that when I see these kinds of stories, they promote the same kinds of ideas that we're seeing being reinforced in other areas. Ideas that allow for men to be the silent objectified background in a woman's story where his sacrifices are irrelevant, his contributions are irrelevant. It is solely about how she feels, which changes with the goddamn wind. And at the end of the narrative, he's a monster. You know, it's interesting, even though this book was written before the color purple, it's almost like the every, every one of these men, except for, for tea cake is like Danny Glover's mister. They're, they're abusive, they're, they're considered uh, oblivious to her feelings, how she sees the world, what she wants to do, when none of them are keeping her there. Not once did any of those men say, I will do something to you if you, they can leave. She can leave. There was nothing keeping her there. And even if one of them did threaten her, it couldn't stop her from leaving. All she had to do was wait till he left home. Worst case scenario. 
And yet, none of their, their experiences are part of the story. And this is venerated as, you know, just like the color purple, as a new template that explains the difficulty of black female life. Nothing about the men. Just like this Latino grandfather, whom I will likely never meet. <laughs> and I'll be honest with you, I was hurt on his behalf. This man that I've never even met before. I was hurt on his behalf. I'd be damned if I spend 50 years in a field providing for my five kids so that one of my grandkids who's in college, something that I clearly couldn't do as a 50-year field worker, has nothing else to say about me but machismo and wants to write about me and my wife in a, in a class paper just to be able to say I ain't shit. A profound disrespect. But again, this is not about her as an individual student. This is not about her. I've had 40 of these a year for 12 years. I've been teaching these writing classes for years and, and it's the same story. And it's not limited to Latinas by any stretch of the imagination. Every racial group of women that come in those classes wants to write the same paper. And why? Because they've been conditioned to do so. They've been taught both in classes in terms of forthright theory, you know, in terms of the theories they're introduced to and in society. You can receive the benefits of being a woman. And whether those are the benefits come at the sacrifice of men is irrelevant. But the way you should meet these benefits in terms of how you should address it directly is to consider them. Just the backdrop of your experience. Drew, appreciate that. It's just part of the backdrop. And no, high scholars, it, it, it happens with, with black male uh, family members as well. You know, and it gets interesting when they tell stories. You know, I, I saw my, my grandfather. Um, he was mean to my grandmother or, you know, or, or sometimes it's not even about what he did. It's sometimes it's about his absence. Right. This was something that, that Kevin Samuel said the other night. He was talking about how everybody regards Big Mama's house. Hell, there's a movie called Big Mama's House. The narrative of the Big Mama is that the family relies on her. She's the centerpiece of the family, right? Even her house is the centerpiece of the family. And one of the things I've noticed in the last 20 years even is when Big Mama dies, the whole family falls apart. And one of the things they fall apart at is fighting over the remains of Big Mama's estate. That's one of the central things that families fall apart over these days, right? Fighting over the house that Big Mama had. Because, you know, at that time, you know, you're talking about a, a, a silent generation, you know, maybe a, an older baby boomer bought a house for 15000 Now it's worth 800 700 You know what it is. Y'all have heard the stories. Thanks, Charles. Uh, her response was she was interested in where I was telling her to go with the paper. I, I, I told her to look up and research the exchange of gender-based resources. Theon, appreciate that. Um, I, I, you know, I told her to look up the, the resource-based exchange in marriage, right, and what that does. 
uh, and how that works and how people marry for an exchange, not because they want to walk into oppression, and that her grandmother wasn't, wasn't stupid. Appreciate that generous support, Tyrone. Thank you. That, you know, th those women weren't stupid. They didn't walk into oppressive situations because they didn't know any better. They walked into a contract. And they knew they got the better part of the deal, right? So she walked out interested in, in researching that instead. But we'll see how that goes. But anyway, what was I saying? Um, oh, Big Mama's house. So, you know, I've seen families fall apart fighting over Big Mama's house. But the thing I find interesting about the story of Big Mama is the absence of a big daddy you know in certain families the, the 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 head of the household that died 20 years before his wife 30 years before his wife the chair you can't sit in essential appreciate that yeah so you know in that dynamic what few want to mention is that big daddy often is the one that sacrificed his life to for that house and then it just gets to be known as Big Mama's house. And that's it. Father is almost absent from the narrative, which again goes back to what we're talking about in terms of our, their eyes are watching God, goes back to the conversation I had with the student. It goes back to a number of these stories over and over and over again, even culminating in, in a love Jones where men are participating in their own absence because it is she that needs to be foregrounded when, when you ask for what exactly one gets in response to this sacrifice, well, what did any of the men get when Janie was walking back home barefoot? They got to say that they were with her. That's about it. None of the men even got any kids out of the dynamic. But it's just this narrative that I, that I want to I wanna put on the table as something to reflect on beyond feminist assumptions that Women being centered is the end of the conversation. I think it's the beginning. That's just me. <laughs> yeah, I see you, BGS. It was never a man's house. Well, man sacrificed for it. He spent decades paying for it, bought it, died. Hell, it, it, another one I show in my classes is uh, a raisin in the sun. Now, this is another one where black male absence is key to this story. I don't know how many of you may have read, read the play, seen it performed. Um, I prefer the one with Felicia Rashad and uh, P. Diddy in it, but that's just mainly because I like Felicia Rashad. But you can watch any of them. I mean, some of those performances are are, are incredible, man, or, or even Fences, right? When you look at these stories, you still see the same type of black male absence, the same type of disposability. And a Raising in the, a raisin, a raisin in the Sun, it's a story about a family who is waiting on a check, a life insurance check that would change their lives and what to do about it. The eldest son, the eldest daughter, they're, they're, they're fighting with the mother. They're all going back and forth on what to do with this check. But what is easy to eliminate is the reason the check is coming is that the patriarch of the household dies before the story begins. We don't even get to see his face. He is the provision. He's, he's the provider of the basic reason the story even exists. His life granted them a certain amount of, of resources. And from there, it's all kind of turmoil as people fight over it. Fear to none. Appreciate that. Or again, I mentioned fences. You're talking about, you know, in the latest iteration, if you went and watched it, beautifully acted. 
Denzel Washington. Um, what's the sister's name? How do I forget her name? She's brilliant. I mean, in terms of the performance, y'all know it. Viola Davis. I mean, watching them act on screen in the theater was like watching, you know, an elite championship basketball game. They played off each other in terms of acting beautifully, like it was professional level. And, it, you know, of course it would be. But still, it's a beautiful thing to see. Beautifully acted. But when you get to the core of the story, you have this man who sacrifices years of his life providing for a family that doesn't understand him, that somewhat resents him in, in particular ways. And it's not until he's dead that some remnant of understanding him begins to come into play. Some. But the last portion of his life he spends virtually alone in his own house. And his crime is he fell in love with another woman. He never absolved his responsibilities to his family. He married for practical reasons. He fell in love with a woman. She died. In the last portion of his life, he and his, his wife raised the child of that union. But the resentment was so deep that his wife could let him know you're basically alone for the rest of your life, even though you're laying right next to me. And that's how it was carried out. And if you challenge that or push back against it, you know, you're met with this wall of criticism and accusations of, you know, of sexism and whatnot. But nobody considers the sacrifice of men who die in obscurity and are basically forgotten. But their sacrifices, appreciate that, Charles, but their sacrifices are still used on a daily basis. still used people are still eating off their labor eating off their blood just like when we talk about BLM and we talk about the women that are that are that are going to these $1200 a night resorts buying million dollar homes off the blood of who There's so many like Osiris broken up into pieces in the underworld. But they still provide the narrative. Their sacrifices are still evident. We are still food for the crows. And I just want to know how long it's going to take before you guys get sick of this shit. Black men are not just some background noise to people's lives. They are not just some sacrificial lambs that exist for people to eat off of and to be disrespected, exploited, and, and, and disregarded. They are not. And this is the story I see all the time. I'm not happy about it. I talk to husbands every day, at least every week whose weekly sacrifices go unacknowledged, even when their wives hadn't ha haven't had to work in years. No acknowledgement. None. I found out about this concept I never heard before. There's one of the brothers, shout out to him, he's in the comment section uh, on the community tab where I pointed out the story of the Latina student. And he talked about food cheating. Never heard of that before. Food cheating. Apparently he was saying with some Latina women, and I've been, you know, others have, have also suggest, suggested you have Caribbean and some African women in this too. 
where if their husband eats food from another woman, they're offended. And the way it was described to me, it had to do with taking such pride in their and what they're doing in their households or what they're doing in their kitchens. And this, I mean, taking such pride in it that they were offended if you enjoyed or ate another woman's cooking before you came home to have dinner. I'd never heard of that before. I grew up in an era where, you know, even as a kid, you cook for yourself. And when you get married, I ain't a slave. You got two hands. Even if she sat home all day watching TV and you work three jobs. And I didn't make that up. So the idea of someone taking so much pride in what they do in regard to taking care of you, that they're offended when you don't enjoy it, that blew my mind. But all of that would presuppose a certain respect for sacrifice. And of course, we can't have that. That's too difficult. But my only point here, fellas, is, is really just to, just to foreground for a moment. The sacrifices that men make that go unregarded, that go disregarded, that go ignored, that are taken for granted. And not limited to the ones performed by the men in people's lives, but also the men that you don't see. The men you call when there's an emergency whether it's a life-threatening emergency or a plumbing emergency. The absent, unacknowledged, sacrificial men that provide the, 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 the concrete, the pavement by which we walk. And you know what? I didn't even mean that literally. I was just talking metaphorically, but it, it applies literally, literally as well. How long do we accept that? I'll tell you. The very basic level, I want to see men and black men in particular, in particular, at least start by requiring respect in your daily relationships, most particularly in terms of, you know, those that whose whose part of life you're in, who, whose lives you're in, especially those you sacrifice for. What happens just curious, what happens when you require it? What happens if you demonstrate that you are completely willing to walk away if that respect is not extended? What happens then? Somebody told me the last time I talked about respect, well, respect is earned. Well, you know what? The brothers I'm talking about earned that shit decades ago. But one of the things we haven't learned how to do is to require it. So, fellas, I hope that you will do so. I really do. Now, just in case you, you, you don't know, uh, we are tonight going to have office hours. Um, so, you know, that's for my members, YouTube or Patreon members. You can go to the community tab in YouTube for the link. After a few minutes, let me get it and post it up there on Patreon, I will send it there as well. And based on your membership level, you can communicate in the chat or come up on the screen. We can dialogue and continue the discussion from tonight. So we will be doing that. But I just wanted to pose the question. Whether we're talking about, you know, black men's accomplishments being ignored like I did earlier on with the first public service announcement, or whether we're talking about black men who were innocent from the start and still considered and treated as guilty, even when their innocence is determined in a court of law. 
Do black men still are, are they apologized to? Can they be regarded as human? Or whether we talk about the sacrifices made. See, what I want to get across to you is everything I talked to about tonight are really on the same spectrum. We have grown comfortable with the disposability of black men and in the background. It's become par for the course. And I want you all to challenge this. Ladies who are here, if you have the if you have the, the, the backbone to ride with this discussion, I want you to challenge the women around you that walk on this pavement of sacrifice by men and are oblivious to it. And fellas, for those of you who are providing that pavement, I want you to put people on notice. Your sacrifice comes with a cost. This is an exchange of resources. See, we were told to sacrifice because that's what we were supposed to do. What we should have been told is that sacrifice is part of an exchange. And what I should get for that exchange is based on the kind of man I am. But this is what I require. You want to eat off my blood, sweat and tears? You damn well better talk to me like a human being. And that's, you know, the funny part. That's so, that's so low. That's, that's, that's so low. That's not even really a, that's not even really a request. It isn't really even a request, but, but appreciate that officer. It, it damn near needs to be for black men. And I hope you brothers are willing to extend that and require it. Because if you're, you're the kind of brothers I'm talking about, you damn sure deserve it. All right. So y'all know the deal. You know how we do this. Um, I got to see if this button works real quick. You know what? Actually, there's another button. Ooh, it works. I created this page a year ago. Well, months ago. I didn't know if it actually works, but it does. That's dope. I have to remember that later. Sorry about that. But anyway, <laughs> y'all know the deal. <laughs> I like to close out the way I like to close out. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to do it right. <clears throat> All right. So, brothers, be reminded that we are not criminals by birth, perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man children, sperm donors, child support wellsprings, success objects, walking fallacies, ATM machines, lottery tickets, brainless henchmen, valueless assassins, pro bono mercenaries, unpaid bodyguards, interchangeable stepfathers, child discipline proxies, unpaid repairmen, workhorses, emotional tampons, or any other socially accepted dehumanizing stereotype. We are thinkers, inventors, innovators, leaders, fathers, warriors, and men. Embrace your humanity, know your worth, and extend your time, attention, and resources only to those who genuinely respect you. And remember, your worth is not defined by meeting other people's narcissistic, selfish, and unrealistic needs. You define your worth. Peace, y'all. Hope y'all have a good night. See you soon. Thank you.